Hey everybody, it is August 16th for episode 3 of At Percussion. Holy <laughs> did I really? Oh my <laughs> god! <laughs> I didn't notice. Hey everybody, it is August 16th for episode 3 of Tacit Thoughts, Percussion Podcast. That is the name of this podcast, is Tacit Thoughts. This is definitely not the second take because I accidentally said another one. Uh, we took a little break. Chris was gone for about a week and a half, two weeks, teaching Genesis Drum and Bugle Corps front ensemble, but they just wrapped up with DCI finals. And he is back, and we have a really cool guest, Alex Halley, who was a member of the World Percussion Group again in 2017. Well, this will be the third member of WPG we'll have on in this week and the next. He was the two-year basic keyboard solo first place winner in 15 and 16. He has several pieces through C. Allen Publications. He went to the same undergrad as Chris and I did, Texas A&M University Commerce, with Brian Zader teaching out there. Actually has a degree in English and a minor in music. He is one on the staff at Lone Star Percussion, where a lot of us buy, obviously, our stuff. And he is one of the front men for the, personally, a really cool band, in my opinion, Greenpoint Empathy, out of Dallas, Texas. So welcome, Alex Howley. How's it going, How's man? it going? Good. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> so, man. So, Chris. Yeah, what's up, man? Dude, how is drum corps? I just gotta know. Because you... What's kind of interesting is... You and I never did drum corps. We, like, went to camps, but we never did the full DCI experience. And now you're out teaching drum corps front ensemble. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun, actually. Um, kids were great. Staff was great. Um, I, I was smart enough to pick up the last three weeks of tour, and I started right at Swamp Tour. So that was the <laughs> smartest decision I've ever made. Uh, we got to, I picked up in San Antonio, and it was record highs for Texas, I think. I think it was like in the upper hundreds. It was miserable after being in Colorado for two years where that just doesn't exist. Uh, and then remembering what humidity is um, was also pretty terrible. But no, it was a fun experience. Um, kind of fun walking in front of a group like that, uh, playing the same bits of music that they've been playing all summer long and then coming in and throwing in new opinions and then uh, hearing that same thing over and over again to a certain point where we're like, all right, clean this, clean this, clean this. We're bored. Let's play some modes. Clean this, clean this. You know. uh, no, it was, a, it was a good time, though. I actually really enjoyed it. Man, that's cool. Yeah, how many summers did you do, Alex? You did two. I did two. Uh, I marched 2014 and 2016 with the Boston Crusaders. Um, played marimba the first summer and xylophone the second summer. I took 2015 off because I actually got tendonitis in my left wrist, um, and then I skipped my age out to do World Percussion Group. So my drum corps experience was kind of strange. <clears throat> yeah, man. Yeah, I never did drum corps. It's one of those things that I did other things that were, in my opinion, were cool, but it's one of those kind of looking back what-if scenarios. But I guess I guess we all do that. We kind of wonder what the path could have been if we did different things. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth, um, I know this is kind of unusual, but I've had plenty of what-ifs in the other direction. Like, what if I hadn't done it? Um, not to say I regret it per se, but, um, you know, as is with, as is the case with everything, you have to choose your opportunities and which ones you take and 
drum corps is a huge investment, um, especially when you're in school and you have no money and it costs money and you can't make any money over the summer. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, cool experience, of course, but there's plenty of other things that I think are worth doing. Yeah. yeah. I've, my thing is always, and I say to the undergrads here at JMU, um, or at least the ones that take lessons with me or ask for advice often, it's like, what should I do this summer? It's just like, dude, just do something. Or like, you don't have to do <laughs> drum corps. You don't have to go to the ma- a major orchestral festival. Just, like, do something. Like, you can say, like, okay, yeah, this summer I'm just going to get up every day and practice for two hours of snare drum in the morning, then I'm going to have lunch, then I'm going to do two hours of keyboard, then, and it's just like, yeah. But, like, so few people are disciplined like that. Like, I can't do that. I can't keep myself unless I have serious, like, performance goals coming up. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah, Caleb will hit me up. He'll be like, yeah, I'm going to do this and this and this. And then three weeks later, he's just like, so I plowed through Dark Souls 2 and 3 again. And <laughs> That uh, is the most relatable thing. <laughs> Dude, Dark Souls, to be honest with anyone listening, uh... Dark Souls is the only reason we have Alex on. We just got to know. I need to know his favorite Dark Souls, if he did Bloodborne, his favorite DLC, lore. We're going to be talking about Dark Souls for about probably four hours. I'm ready. Do, do you have a favorite Dark Souls game, by the way? Um, I, I think the third one, it just as far as like the overall experience goes and what I got out of the way, it tied everything together um, especially with the DLC I that that was probably my favorite but it was also the last one that I played um, like the, obviously I finished that one last so um, I, I will say going back and trying to play the first one after you've played the third one and Bloodborne is tough just because it feels old kind of yeah. and a little bit clunky but they're all awesome I, I, I mean I I don't know every time I play one it, it changes yeah for anybody that doesn't know, Bloodborne is this video game series on, uh, I think, only PlayStation. I think one of, one of the remastered ones is on Switch. There's Chris's tiny, tiny-ass little dog barking in the background. Uh, <laughs> but I read this actually talking about video games. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's this really cool article I saw recently uh, addressing freshmen and incoming uh, college students and having issues with playing too much video games. And this professor would sit down and basically say, all right, like, what is it about these games that you like so much? And then they would try to find out for, say, if they were really into, like, the grind of doing stuff, he would try to push them into uh, degree plans that kind of fit to their personality types, I guess. And then I started thinking, and it's just like, so these Dark Soul games are, like, brutally difficult, especially at the beginning but, like, there's such a rewarding feeling once you, like, get past, like, a certain boss or a certain area. And then I started thinking, I was like, man, it's kind of it's kind of percussion-relatable. Like, I'm working on Merlin right now, the Marimba solo, and, like, to get through a page... <laughs> thanks, Chris. To get through a page and, like, be able to just go through the top left to the bottom right and just get through it, like, it's so rewarding. Like, it's difficult, but it's just... I don't know. It's like the Dark Souls of Marimba for me. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I don't know that I believe in, like, difficulty and working towards something and the reward of succeeding at something that you care about. 
being different for different tasks. Like, I, I don't know. I, you know, I have a lot of different interests and all of them are rewarding when I learn something new about them and get better at them. And, um, that is totally an analog to my experience playing video games in Dark Souls. Dude, yeah, speaking about multi-talented or multifaceted, so if anyone hasn't listened to Greenpoint, Empath Greenpoint Empathy, sorry about that, uh, Alex's band, man, dude, this stuff is good. The, uh, the first track you dropped uh, back in, I guess, maybe November or December or something like that, I had yeah. to play through it several times it was a uh, yeah it's a good stuff how did you get into more of the pop side because i feel like sometimes in the classical world especially and i hate it a lot is that we alienate the classical ver it's like this pop versus classical thing and it's just so infuriating sometimes yeah um it's a it's an interesting story uh as is most of my musical sort of upbringing um i i started doing audio engineering to an extent. I didn't know that's what it was called, but I started doing audio engineering and music production and recording in around seventh grade with uh, two of my friends, Daniel Litwin, who's my roommate now, and the other member of Greenpoint Empathy, and my friend Ryan. Um, and we started making music back in, in middle school on GarageBand on our parents' Macintosh. And, you know, everything was real jerry-rigged. We used a uh, rock band microphone to record everything, everything from guitars guitar to vocals to whatever. And we, you know, we made a whole bunch of music and it was for an animated TV show that we tried to make on YouTube and a lot of failed projects that ended up teaching me a lot more than I realized. And through college, I sort of fell into the trap of doing what sort of people told me that I should be doing and pursuing the things that other people saw value in instead of uh, being honest with myself about things that I enjoyed. And there was a moment in, during my junior year where I had an essay to write. I think I was already late. <laughs> um, I, like, I could not start this essay. I was an English major and I could not start this essay. I, I, it wasn't because I didn't know what to write. It wasn't, I just did not want to. And I realized that I'd been um, listening to some artists that you know, their music tends to center around their experience, um, like how they started and their come up, so to speak. And I was like, I miss this. I have, I have the gear, which I didn't. I had um, one microphone and my laptop. And that night I started a mixtape and it was terrible. I, I wrote and recorded and mixed and edited everything myself. Um, and I did it in about two weeks. I did like 10 or 11 tracks and those are not anything that you can find on the internet anymore. <laughs> but, uh, at the time it was really valuable. I just jumped in and I, I, I realized it was something that I wanted to do. So I tried it and I learned from it. And then, um, last year, uh, almost a, a little over a year ago, actually, um, my roommate Dan was in, um, Barcelona studying abroad and I was at market street in McKinney, Texas and we were on the phone catching up, seeing how his, his trip was going. And we sort of had this crazy idea, like, what if, you know, he, he uh, studied broadcast journalism. He records podcasts now um, for a company called Market Scale. But he has always been passionate about music. We've always made music together since we started, but it was always just for fun. 
and we had we were we kind of said, what if we moved in together and started a band, and found a place in Dallas, found jobs in Dallas, and um, you know built a studio and tried to record music, and it sort of that was kind of it. The rest is sort of history. Um, he came home that summer. We recorded a cover of a Beatles song, and that was the first Greenpoint Empathy release. Um, and then in December he was home for winter break. He came and visited me in Commerce, and we actually live streamed the recording, uh, the writing and recording process of Takeout, which was our first single. And then the rest of winter break we spent. I'm sorry, we recorded Takeout over um, Thanksgiving break, and then over winter break we recorded four more songs, um, which turned into our first EP, Hot Sugar. And since then, uh, he graduated uh, a semester after me. I graduated a semester early and started working at Lone Star. And he found a job in Dallas. We actually just got a condo in Dallas a couple weeks ago, built the studio, and here we are. So now we're finally getting started on music again. We had to take a little hiatus to just move and figure out how to work and make money and live life. (laughs) But yeah, that's sort of the whole story of of how that happened. I will say, I think the music video for Takeout, and I think it's a Grover Triangle, I think it might be the only actual music video in existence that has like a Grover Concert Triangle in it. It is a Sabian six-inch hand-hammered triangle. I'm never getting a Grover endorsement. I'm never getting a Grover endorsement. Sorry to disappoint you. All right, we we got to wrap this up. I can't do this anymore. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, almost all the percussion on that track is is real instruments. Um, most of them are just little percussion toys I've acquired over the years. Um, there, my my dog, who is sadly dead now. She died a few years ago. Rest in peace, Rudy. Um, she like we still had her chain collars, and we used those as a sound in that song. We used a lot of like eclectic sounds because we didn't have a lot of gear to make or, or a lot of like samples or, or sort of quality sounds and we couldn't really afford any and we still can't but we've you know been investing in it more but at the time we were like we're just going to use everything that we have and see what happens man uh one of our three mutual friends lewis raymond Kolker, actually asked on facebook who some of your influences were for concert music when you compose, as well as who are some of your influences for um, your Greenpoint Empathy writing? Yeah, so uh, as far as uh, concert music, classical music, my influences are honestly kind of stock as far as, like, I didn't really listen to classical music growing up, um, and that was pretty overwhelming when I got to school because I knew I loved percussion and I knew I loved playing music, but I had not been cultured, so to speak. And as you mentioned, it is a difficult culture to enter as someone who doesn't have a background in it and didn't grow up listening to classical music. And I tried to, you know, seep myself in it as much as I could. But um, most of my, the, the broadest experience I had with classical music was just taking music history classes and listening to the Norton Anthology of Western music and, uh, you know, sort of discovering music that way. But um, my first marimba solo was actually derived from a quote-unquote soundtrack that I made for a play in my honors theater class that I took because I needed an honors credit, and it ended up being cool. Um, So I wrote it for piano, um, and I played along with a play, 
And that I took a lot of influence from Chopin and also just like soundtracks, which is the most experience that I had with classical music growing up was, you know, John Williams and Star Wars and stuff like that. I'm a big Star Wars fan. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chopin and romantic music has always influenced me a lot, which I know is kind of taboo now for contemporary percussionists to uh, enjoy the romantic era. It's just, I, I don't want to say it's frowned upon, but it is not pushing any boundaries. Um, and I'll, uh, on top of that, a lot of my um, like pop music influences, of course, uh, inspire my music too. And then I also draw a lot of in- inspiration from other art forms, um, uh, you know, writers and things like that. Um, things I had to read for school, Shakespeare, <laughs> believe it or not, influenced my second piece that I uh, published. So the the inspirations are sort of broad, and it's actually kind of hard for me to pinpoint what exactly it is, which I know is unusual, and hopefully that doesn't make me sound like a, like a fraud. But um, as far as pop music goes, that's a lot easier. Um, my roommate and I... So Greenpoint Empathy is just the two of us, uh, me and Dan, for the time being. We love collaborating with people, but um, we live together. We have a studio in our condo, and that's where we do everything. Um, sort of everything's in-house just because it's what we can afford and because we we enjoy all of it. Um, we discovered Daft Punk together in high school. That's probably the biggest one for the two of us. Um I had a weird musical upbringing, starting with like NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, and then I listened to a lot of Linkin Park in in high school, and then I started getting into like progressive metal, like Periphery and Tesseract, and a band I really like called Tetrafusion. Um, and then I sort of discovered pop music, hip hop through John Bellion, who is a pop artist who takes a lot of inspiration from uh, Jay Dilla and hip hop music. And so from there, I sort of started looking into that, and um, then I started listening to a lot of hip-hop. So, like, Childish Gambino, I really like Chance the Rapper. Um, Yeah, I don't know. And and then there's just, there's a lot, like The Beatles or um, Tyler the Creator I really like. Um, there's a hip hop group based out of Texas or, um, they came out of Texas called Brockhampton who sort of prided themselves on doing it themselves. And there's just a ragtag bunch of kids that came together and sort of blew up cause they just worked really hard at it. So that, uh, they inspired us a lot. Um, yeah, that's sort of a you rundown. You said, uh, when you said like Backstreet Boys to Lincoln Park to Periphery, I just like, yeah, that's the good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> man. Yeah, I always you feel forgot. like. Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was gonna say, Caleb, you've got the other part where Caleb was a giant emo girl and listened to uh, what was it? Uh, oh, I just blanked on the name. No. Uh, I'll tell you. Taking, taking back, back Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. Taking back Sunday all day long. I still listen to Taking Back Sunday at least once a week. I was oh, gonna say, God. there's no way you just you can't just give up give something like that up. It becomes a part of who you are. It's one of those things where it's just like you're just going through a phase. Well, it's been uh, it's been 15 years and it's still going strong. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know when the phase is going to end, man. 
Do you remember the time we talked about going to a Taking Back Sunday concert? I bring back that story in that probably once a month. <laughs> so was it was like, go ahead and say it. Yeah, so basically Chris and I are sitting on the couch, and one of us is about to move. We were living together at the time. And we started talking about Taking Back Sunday or something, and I'm just like, damn, I would love to see Taking Back Sunday. And I'm just <laughs> like, I wonder if they're playing. They were playing in Dallas. The concert started in like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, no! <laughs> oh, it was crazy. It was just such unfortunate luck. Yeah. Man. Yeah, you didn't even miss the concert. It was it was like, it, you still thought of it before it happened, but yeah. just like a I hair too I late. I could have maybe been able to go. Like, I would I would have to pay like a $200 front row seat, and then like... Yeah, by the, by the time they went on, <laughs> yeah, you could have made it. Man, I'm not that hardcore a fan. I don't want to drop that much money. <laughs> are you into a? Are you into Post Malone any? Um, kind of. <clears throat> I have. Post I have given. Too. I have given him my due diligence. I listen to his new album. I, um, I try to do that. For some reason, I, I it's never clicked with me. I don't hate his music. I don't think it's terrible. I just don't. I it has never stuck with me. Yeah, some of his tunes I really like, and then some of his songs I'm just kind of like, eh, it's not that great. We did one of his in Still Band. I teach a Still Band here, and I arranged a Post Malone tune, and it went down pretty well. Fit, fit all right. So you mentioned oh. uh, you mentioned the Beatles. So speaking of the Beatles, I had to pull this up because. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know where we're going. So if oh. anyone doesn't know, Yoko Ono, who is of course uh, she was married to John Lennon. Uh, she has a new album that is coming out fairly soon called um, Warzone. And I'll play just a little clip. If it doesn't come through, well, I can drop it in afterwards. But just a little bit of Yoko Ono Warzone. Can y'all hear that all right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of the gist of the album. Like, it's a lot of spoken word. Or I, I think it's going to be the official banger of 2018, though. I'm saying, I'm saying it could be. I'm not giving up hope just quite yet. <laughs> so, uh, I always feel weird about Yoko Ono because, and just if anyone doesn't, I typed up just a little background on her. If anyone listening isn't sure of her uh, career outside of being married to John Lennon, because she actually did a whole lot outside of that for sure so yoko was a japanese multimedia artist she's a singer songwriter a political activist filmmaker performance artist and she's considered as a part of this fluxus movement so obviously and kind of unfortunately her biggest claim to fame that the popular culture at least sees her 
is as the wife of the late John Lennon, who is, of course, one of the original members of the Beatles. And she's often, unfortunately, again, credited with breaking up the Beatles by either her influence personally or artistically on John Lennon, which I don't think is true, but that's not a here or there. So uh, Yoko still supports her and Lennon's message of peace and art throughout the world, and she has several funds and artistic establishments set up around the globe for this. Uh, artistically, she is with this Fluxus movement. So if you don't know what Fluxus is, or it's pretty cool. It's an international interdisciplinary community of artists that had a large surge in prominence in the 1960s to the 1970s. And it's still around. It's just, um, it's a little bit different. It's evolved as all genres of art do. So these artists engaged in experimental art performance and emphasized the artistic process over the finished product. So Fluxus serves kind of as the antithesis of conventional art, and it celebrates the anti-commercialism and this anti-art movement. So it's considered an extension of, if you know about early 20 Dadaism, which is kind of almost in this absurdism category of music and electronics, visual arts, it can be urban planning, architecture, design, literature, and it even, the far reaches even get into culinary arts. Uh, so some common influencers of Fluxus are, or sorry, some early influences of Fluxus movements, not considered Fluxus creators themselves, but some early influences are obviously John Cage, whose notation that one should embark on an artwork without an end conception, and his understanding of the work as a side of interaction between artist and audience, as well as Marcel Duchamp, the French artist who was really, really active in this Dada movement in the early 1900s. Uh, Yoko actually learned some from Cage and Merce Cunningham and those folks in her Fluxus beginnings. Uh, she got introduced, I think, through her first husband, Toshi uh, Ichiyanagi, who was a student of Cage and uh, contributed to the Fluxus workbook along with Yoko. Uh, the title Fluxus was coined by this guy, George uh, Machunas, when they were looking for a title for a proposed magazine. Prominent composers of this genre can be considered George McChanus, who has solo for lips and tongue, which is just a bunch of gestures. Yoko Ono has a few pieces, Fly, where the instructions for the piece, it just says fly, so you interpret that however you will. Uh, lighting piece, where the instructions are to light a match and let it burn out. Uh, George Brecht is another one who has a piece, Red-Green, so you interpret that however you want. Maybe you hold up something red, hold up something green. You stop, then you go. It could be kind of anything. So a little bit back to Ono. She really did prevail in a lot of areas of art. She has an honorary doctorate. Uh, she's had works in MoMA and galleries throughout the world. Uh, but I kind of want to know what y'all think about this. Is this this weird thing? And I was talking with Casey about this earlier. But it's like... Fluxus, it was never, it's so fringe, it was never meant to be viewed, I feel like, through this modern popular world eye. And I feel like because she's attached to John Lennon, everybody looks at Yoko and thinks just, oh, that's, that's crazy. Just like, yeah, well, it's crazy, but she's part of this <clears throat> movement, and that movement isn't crazy, it's just on the outskirts. I, I could see that. Because, I, I mean, that's obviously towards like a really niche art movement. An art world which is as diverse as it is I mean it's just massively diverse uh, but like uh, 
I think that's a fair statement to say that a lot of that's going to get attention just because of her influence in the pop culture. So a large um, or a huge base of like the crowd that's going to see it might not even understand like the like the background basis of where it's coming from. Um, I mean, you can see that when you just read the YouTube comments, yeah. uh, which was funny, but at the same time, a little a little a little sad. I mean, because I could see where like this is like a big segment of like her performance art and like her kind of emotion thrown into this music um, that's maybe not meant to be viewed in the spectrum that a lot of people are going to see it in. Well, it makes me think if, if you've seen the piece Mysteries of the Macabre, it's a Georgie Ligeti piece and it's for soprano and it's very performance arty in parts and very theatrical. It makes me think, okay, if Kanye West went on stage and performed Mysteries of the Macabre and was like screaming and like shouting and doing all the really interesting aspects of it, I feel like uh, Ligeti's, I'm sure it wouldn't, but I feel like there's this slight chance Ligeti's credibility would be reduced because everyone would see Kanye West do this and think, oh, who's this Ligeti guy? This is like absurd. This is just insanity. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me, um, it, and I actually think it's not that far off from the <clears throat> excuse me, the pop classical divide you were talking about earlier. Um, I think a lot of people just get stuck in their realm and used to what they're used to hearing, and when something challenges that. Um, you know, they get uncomfortable and the reaction is usually to laugh or think it's bad or um, definitely to stop listening. Yeah. It makes Which me is, ahead, you know, sorry. regardless of how uh, you feel about it or how I feel about it, um, I, I do think that if, I don't know, it's worth listening to. It's worth being challenged and being uncomfortable and at least being forced to decide what you think about it and how it makes you feel and if it's all something that you think is nonsense or if there's something in it that you think is redeemable and some of it is nonsense or if you it totally changes your life and you think it's really powerful. Um, it's just so interesting how the same piece of art can have such a profoundly different reception um, depending on people's backgrounds. Yeah. It's like I've had classes and conversations where people who are really deep in the orchestral side will be like i'm not into pop music you know it's just this four chord stuff and it's just like well hopefully when you listen to beethoven you're not just like oh a bunch of fancy chords this is hip and then it's kind of on the flip side when people are like i'm not really into that snooty classical music and it's just like well hopefully when you listen to classical music it's not just this idea of like snooty bourgeoisism i just i don't know you just got to go deeper than that, regardless what it is, I feel like. Yeah. And I mean, I think to some degree, classical culture does that to itself. Um, just there are definitely a lot of it's it's more difficult for someone who has never listened to classical music or never been to a symphony orchestra, for example, to just go. Um, you kind of have to have someone show you the show you the ropes a little like hey, you have to kind of dress this way. And some of that's loosening up for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, like when you can and can't clap between movements and between pieces and how 
quick classical musicians are to make fun of people who clap in between movements but then at the same time out of the other side of their mouth they're saying you know more people should support classical music and and do this and that and i think there's a middle ground as always um and i think it's naturally going to move in that direction but that's just to your your point about sort of the snootiness like i don't think anyone wants to be perceived that way but um there's something to be said for the fact that it is um at least understandable how how someone with no background in classical music could think that yeah i did the concerto competition here uh and one of my comments and I, i don't think i've ever been this mad about a musical comment well, you know, I can't even say that. It wasn't a musical comment. The only comment on this <laughs> is a panel of five, and they're outside of the university. They were people from schools in different states around the area and stuff, so no one will know who this is. But the comment was, and it was the only comment on this whole page, is like, I wore, basically, I wore tight black jeans and a button-up shirt, and I didn't tuck it in, and I had dress shoes on, which I was like, that's fine. That's kind of my, my thing. I don't really do the whole tux and dress pants stuff. Yeah. And the only comment was, you need to dress to the level, something, you need to dress to the level you want your audience to be dressed. And I was just like, what? I don't give a shit what my audience is wearing. <laughs> uh, as long as you don't smell bad and you're not wearing like something that has like neon flashing lights on the chest, like I don't care. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, I wore, um, a dark pair of jeans for my my senior recital, which, I, as you mentioned, I got a degree in English. Um, I did not need to give a senior recital, but I like percussion, and I compose, and I wanted to perform. So um, I asked to give a recital. I set it up, and I wore jeans. And I, I can't tell you how... I mean, every, like the first time that I saw people after the concert, their re- response was either like, that was great, good job, or why did you wear jeans? <laughs> And, and it's incredible how much that matters to people. Um, and that's kind of why I did it. It's like, I'm comfortable in this. I don't really like dressing up. Um, nothing wrong with nothing wrong with people that, that do, of course. Um, you know, and to, each, and to each your own. And, and on the flip side, you should be allowed to dress up if that's something that you want for, uh, you know, your performance. But the idea that it's both for the performer and the audience, it's something that you have to wear... Um, you know, it's just tricky. And then that gets into like a whole other topic of different dress codes for men and women and orchestras and what people can wear. And it's, it's just complicated. And dare I say a little snooty. (laughs) Snooty. Chris is pretty snooty. He wears like a tux and he wears shoes made of gold. (laughs) Right. With all that money I have. They shoot frankincense out the top of him every time he hits a right note in an octave it's like a so whole never thing. no chris chris is in the same boat i think yeah well it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky it's a tricky topic because it, it's like okay well should there be a uniform and should people like on the flip side is it okay to just think all ensembles with a uniform are bad and i, I you know, personally believe sorry I personally believe we just all need to do the Eric Samut look. Just get some, like, casual, like, kind of jean pants. They're not khakis. They're not slacks. They're not really jeans. They're just nice. Like, a floral-patterned button-up shirt, and then just a whole collection of ascots just for every single day. 
Every <laughs> performance ever. That's all he wears, and I love it. I'm down. I'll take that. <laughs> There's a there's a picture of me when I was little hanging on my wall in my bedroom of me in overalls and nothing else. Just <laughs> jean overalls, like shorts, jean short overalls. Um, and I think that's probably going to be my go-to from now on. Well, so when you make it to Carnegie one day, that's what I'm going to be looking for. I'll be severely disappointed if that doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm just trying to mentally picture jean short overalls. And I just like I guess I don't have like the computing power, like the CPU to like process that image. It's just like not in your in your mind's eye. Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm not creative enough. You'll get there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. One day. Yeah. Man for you. I did want to share um (laughs) I did want to share one piece out of uh it's the Fluxus workbook, which is basically all these Fluxus composers and artists came together and there's there's tons of them and there's several hundred pieces in this uh workbook this collection is free online if you just google fluxus workbook f-l-u-x-u-s uh you can download the whole thing but the pieces i mean it's to the point sometimes like 10 pieces will fit on a page because it's just the title and one line of instructions uh but this last one in the whole workbook i think is my favorite it's by um sorry let me look real quick it's by Emmett Williams. It's called Piano Concerto for Pike Number no. 2. And the instructions. Orchestra members seat themselves and wait for the pianist. The pianist enters, bows, walks to the piano. Upon reaching the piano, he jumps from the stage and runs to the exit. Orchestra members must run after him, catch him, and drag him back to the piano. The pianist must try his best to keep away from the piano. When the pianist is finally returned to the piano, the lights are turned off. I'm a big fan of that one. <laughs> I'm just trying to wrap my head around that performance. You'll get I want there to see one that. day. I, I would love that. I would love to experience something like that. I mean, I think it'd be I, great. So, Alex, I gotta ask, what's it like working at Lone Star Percussion? Is it a dream? You just walk in and you play drums all day and then they bring you like cake at lunch and you make $60,000 a year? Uh, yeah, I actually make $500,000 a year. Oh, and... sucker. You need to make a million. <laughs> um, no, it's funny you mentioned cake at lunch. Um, <laughs> one of my bosses, Judy, she makes sweets on every employee's birthday. And that makes every employee's birthday the best day of the year because they're always incredible. Um, no, I, I like it there. I have um, I actually started working there in 2015, the summer that I didn't march. Um, it turns out that um, Judy uh, knew me because she taught me when I was in preschool and I didn't know it. And she saw my mom at DCI finals in 2014 and found out I was a percussionist and marching drum corps as she did. And yeah, so the next year I needed to make some money and I liked Lone Star and I had always shopped there. So I just said, hey, could you use an extra pair of hands in the back? Um, And then so I worked the warehouse for a while and then I marched again and kind of stopped working there. And then I saw Jeff at PASIC and told him that I changed my major to English. And he said, well, if you ever need a writer, or he said, well, if I ever need a writer, I'll let you know. And I thought he was just being polite. But then I got a call um, uh, the end of my sixth semester, I guess, the end of my junior year. 
and he said, we need a writer. So, um, yeah, I worked there part time for my last semester of school and went full time when I got out. And now I do all of their, their web content. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, I, I love the company. I have a lot of sort of friends there that I've made and, uh, coworkers and stuff like that. Um, and it's cool being around music in my sort of nine to five job and still being able to see what is relevant. And I write product descriptions, which is cool because I get to write about all the new stuff that comes out and I get to study it and learn about all the new sheet music that Tapspace or C. Allen just published. And I have to listen to pieces to learn more about them and write about them. Um, as is the case with any small, small business, it's, it can be exhausting. Of course, um, it's just busy and, um, of course school season gets crazy, but, um, I, I really like the company. I, the whole shtick there is kind of help the customer first and support the, the local arts and, um, all of the employees that are there, um, gig or play percussion or drum or, um, are in some way involved with, with percussion and um, that's actually in the company's mission statement is, is support employees and keep them involved in the local music scene, which is really cool being at a place that instead of it taking away from your sort of music career, it can contribute to it. So, yeah, it's been good. Yeah, I will say that I recorded the Rupert Kettle has three etudes for snare drum. And they had a really old video on the Lone Star site. I just sent Alex a message. I was just like, hey, man, uh, I noticed that video is kind of old. Do you want to check this one out? And within like 15 minutes, he had my new video up on Lone Star's site. I thought that was really cool. I was just like, man, that's that's some good good teamwork. Caleb's always happy to have more of himself on the Internet. Well, and what Caleb doesn't know is that, um, like, he probably hasn't checked it recently, but I switched it right back. It probably is. I'm not. I'm not surprised. It's, uh, <laughs> man, dude, do you have any other uh, Greenpoint Empathy stuff coming up? I know you. Ju- I mean, you have just dropped that EP, but uh, yeah. Well, it's been. A, I mean, I guess it wasn't that. It hasn't been that long since we dropped the EP. But um, our whole thing is we get really excited about projects that we do until the moment that we release them, and then we move on. And we try to find the next thing. So, um, uh, like I said, we we just moved into a condo, so that has been taking up a significant amount of time. Um, And we've been working with some other people, starting to produce and edit and record music for different things. But we do actually have a single coming up soon um, called Critical Mass. You heard it here first. And uh, we just just finished the, the instrumental yesterday. And we have the lyrics written, and we are going to record it this weekend. And then I'm going to mix it, and then we're going to put it on the internet, and then it will be available. So yeah, we're we're getting started again. Um, I I don't want to speak for Dan, but I know that my goal is to sort of within the next year and a half to two years have an album. Um, I don't know. I mean, that totally could change. We've been taking everything in stride. It's been a learning experience, um, kind of finding the balance of of what we want and when and what we're trying to create and trying to balance. Like, obviously we want people to listen to our music, but, um, the whole reason we do it is because we have something to say. So 
Yeah, who knows? But we're definitely working. We're recording a lot of music. We're writing a lot of music, um, and there will be stuff out soon. Do y'all play live? Which, um, short answer is no. We don't really have the gear for it, and we don't really want to divide our time between preparing a live set that doesn't suck and also writing new music and recording. Um, and we don't have enough original music to fill a set yet anyway. Um, and we would have to learn more covers when we could instead just learn and write songs at the same time. <laughs> so yeah. for a number of reasons, it's not something that we're, we're doing right now, uh, but we're not opposed to it. Um, we, I, you know, I really want to start just doing smaller shows, um, even like house shows, go play for people in their living room and at like house parties and stuff. But it's not something we've done yet in any large fashion. We've done little gigs like coffee shop stuff and uh, stuff like that, but we haven't done an official Greenpoint Empathy debut show yet, no. Yeah, because it's just the two of you, right? It is, <clears throat> and a whole lot of different instruments. We both played piano growing up. He, um, we do, yeah, we do everything from the recording, the writing, the producing, mixing, editing. Um, he does all the videography, all the photography, all the photo editing, all of our album artwork, all of our design. Um, and we kind of help each other with all of it, but he definitely has more of an eye for those things. And I've been practicing the audio engineering for longer. Um, yeah, we've been best friends since we were three. I'm sorry, four, I think. We learned, we met each other at a, at a community basketball team at the community center in McKinney where we grew up. And then we were in the same kindergarten class, and then we played Star Wars together on the playground all through elementary school, and the rest is absolutely history. We have been best friends since then. And once we started, you know, sort you, you're sort of forced to grow up in middle school because you'll get made fun of for playing with Legos. So we shifted into more conventional creative outlets like making music and videos, and like I said, we tried to do animation for a while, um, and it all sort of... Um, turned into what it is now, which is which is Greenpoint Empathy, which is absolutely a band, and that is what we're doing. But um, it also is sort of a blanket thing for all of our creative projects in the future. Um, the name Greenpoint Empathy actually came from a project we did in in middle school. The rival band in our um, animated YouTube show that we tried to make was named Greenpoint Empathy, and it was because we needed a name for them, and we looked up a random band name generator and it popped up and <laughs> we we tried to come up with another name and we kept coming back to it because it felt right and um we both have sort of what we think it means um but i like it because it technically doesn't mean anything and so it can kind of mean whatever to anybody yeah. but yeah i does that answer your question i don't remember what it was <laughs> i don't even remember what i asked but that was all good well, unfortunately, Alex's Wi-Fi cut out a little bit, but uh, that's okay. It happens all the time. Uh, no fault to him. Do be sure, if you haven't, check out his band, Greenpoint Empathy. They're basically on every audio streaming site that's out there. He has two works available from C. Allen Publications for Solo Marimba. They're both really, really cool. A lot of people are playing them. He also have a new piece performed at PASIC 2018 this coming year. So next up on the podcast, check it out. We have Lindsay Eastham and Hiromu Nagahama. 
which is the East Hama Percussion Duo from Ithaca, New York. Yeah, they're going to talk all things percussion duo with us. Thanks for checking it out. This episode was brought to you by I Should Be Writing My Dissertation, and I really need to try to get some shit done on it before the school year starts. So thanks, and we'll see y'all next time. You've been sleeping on me, sleeping on me, now you're telling me you're dreaming of me, dreaming of me. You've been sleeping on me, sleeping on me, now you're telling me you're dreaming of me, dreaming of me. Sleeping on me, sleeping on me, now you're telling me you're dreaming of me, dreaming of me. You've been sleeping on me, sleeping on me, now you're telling me you're dreaming of me, dreaming of me. Haven't seen you in a while, I was hoping we could fix that. Staring at December in a while, but I can't seem to click that. Yeah, you're like a shooting star in could make a wish that I could get a moment of your time. Bring the wine, I bring the six pack.